Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 29, The LAPD Gets an F. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Choke who we choke. Unlawfully prorogue Parliament when we unlawfully prorogue Parliament. <laughs> we'll get on to that. Only joking. We wouldn't be that stupid. <laughs> Today, I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 16, Bart's Dog Gets an F. That aired originally on March 7th, 1991, which is two weeks after our last episode. And I'm on the west coast of the USA this week as I tell the story of Rodney King, who's beating by the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, on March 3rd, 1991, just four days before Bart's dog gets an F first aired, would eventually trigger the LA riots of 1992. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So we touched on politics a second ago. Mm. Um, and I've uh, just found out this week that there is a whole new political party stemming from a meme page. Oh yes, the Irish Simpsons fans party. Absolutely. And were I Irish, I would be signing up to that immediately. Yeah, definitely, because they sound awesome. They are um, very much against... Landlords exploiting people. Yep. They are very pro-trans rights, and they seem just over, overall pretty cool. Yes. I, I, I think you have to have a certain degree of political intelligence to get a lot of the Simpsons stuff. So if someone likes the Simpsons and understands all the political references and everything like that, then brilliant. So yeah, check out the Irish Simpsons fans party. It's awesome. We for two... Welcome, our new meme overlords. <laughs> um, and just before we go any further, I should note that uh, our friends Ben and Phil have come back with season two of Don't Let's Chart this week. Uh, so that's well worth listening to. And while I'm throwing out plugs, uh, I also did some more work with Tim Worthington over on Looks Unfamiliar, which should be out soon. And just just listen to Cheap Show and Athletico Mints because they're really funny. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Shall we touch on Brexit just a little bit? Oh, I don't like to touch Brexit if I don't have to. It's a bit slimy, but yeah, yeah, I guess we should just just since we've uh, since we've forever aged this episode by mentioning it in the. Oh yeah, episodes. yeah, absolutely. If people are doing a show like this in twenty years' time, they're going to be talking about this because um, we're recording this on the twenty fifth of September, twenty nineteen, and yesterday, the Supreme Court. Most people didn't even realise that the UK had a Supreme Court up to now. The highest court in the land decided that Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, acted unlawfully when he prorogued Parliament, basically shut it down. And so they've ruled that you cannot shut down Parliament for political reasons, which is what he was doing. So, yes, uh, we will watch to see what happens there. Uh, but, yeah, it's we live in absolutely extraordinary, unprecedented times. And it's really, really, really hard to ignore. And I've utterly failed in doing that. Absolutely. And, and we might add that um, impeachment proceedings have begun against President Trump as well. Yeah. Uh, admittedly, in, in the very, very early stages. But I don't know. It was just a, a, a weird day yesterday. Mm, mm. Um, 
But one thing I will say, if you're happy that the UK has a Supreme Court, then the person you need to be thanking is war criminal and star of the Regina monologues, one Tony Blair. Oh, no. Oh, okay. okay. I'll, give him, I'll give him that one. <laughs> and probably, to be fair, several others. But um, yes, I, I'm still going to mention that every time. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> I've steered it back to the Simpsons, so off we go. Fantastic. So this episode aired on March the 7th, 1991. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was number one in the UK hit parade on that particular day? Well, the good news, at least for the life of this section, is that Do the Bartman has finally been vanquished. Unfortunately for me, sitting at number one now is The Clash with Should I Stay or Should I Go? Ah, now you hate The Clash, don't you? I do, I do. Okay. The Clash, who are rubbish fake punks, are here courtesy of an advert for Levi Jeans, that well-known punk brand. Uh, Now, this is going to happen a fair few times in the coming years, and in fact, we may well trip over Freak Power, Mr. Wazzo, Babylon Zoo, Smoke City, or, God forbid, Stiltskin as we carry on into the future. (laughs) Tom, quick pop quiz. Can you name any of the songs that those acts did that got them to number one on the back of a jeans advert? Oh, well, Babylon Zoo did Spaceman. Absolutely. I remember that because in the advert, it's the sped up bit at the start. So everyone bought the single, heard the sped up bit, and then it goes into the normal bit, and everyone was like, oh, the whole song's not sped up. Oh, God. So, yeah, I remember that. The others, no idea. Okay, well, we had um, from Freak Power, Turn On, Tune In, Freak Out. Uh, From Mr. Wazzo, we had Flat Beat. Oh, Flat Beat, Flat Beat, yeah. Featuring uh, Flat Eric in the video. Yeah, that was class. Um, Smoke City was Underwater Love. Nope. That's uh, not a bad one, that. Well, as, as these go. And Stiltskin did Inside, and Lord, I wish they hadn't. <laughs> there we go. Uh, this is The Clash's only number one single in the UK, and it comes nearly a decade after its original release in 1982, taken originally as it was from their rubbish album Combat Rock. Uh, and it was also reissued a couple of times that year and once in 1983. Um <laughs> It's certainly well regarded, and it's a piece of piss to play on the guitar, so, you know, horses for courses. Mm-hmm. Um, one little fact I did find out is that the backing vocals in Spanish are actually in the Ecuadorian dialogue of Spanish, as their translator was the tape operator's mum, and she was Ecuadorian. Wow, that's a random fact. Yeah, it's a deep cut of a fact there. Um the Clash very quickly cashed in on this number one by re-releasing their best song, Rock the Casbah. And that got to number 15 in the UK charts. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, The Clash tended to do better in the US singles chart than the UK ones, because over there they played big arenas. Yeah, of course they do. Punk rock, burn it down, <laughs> smash the system. The US viewership for this episode... Uh, gave it a Nielsen rating of 13.8. It was again the highest rated show on Fox that week. I probably should have just looked up the weeks when it wasn't the highest rated <laughs> show on Fox for this particular season. The production number is 7F14. Now, I don't know exactly why this one was shown out of production order, which makes the reveal that this was shown out of production order a complete anticlimax. Hmm. But if I was to guess, I'd say, much as you alluded to during our talk about Principal Charming, uh, that this was swapped for that episode, so there was a very vaguely love-themed episode being shown on Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at the rest of the season, don't think there's anything else they really could have made that switch with, except maybe Old Money, 
Um, we'll find that out next time, but I think probably Principal Charming was the way to go on that one. The credited writer for this episode was John Vitti. As mentioned way back in episode two, Bart the Storming of the Stasi HQ. <laughs> the chalkboard gag was, I will not sell school property, and on the couch gag, the pets squeeze in with the family. Which we're about to find out is very appropriate for this episode. In which, Homer goes to collect his newspaper from the front step, whereupon it is savaged by Santa's little helper. We've not heard much from that pooch since his introduction in the debut episode, but boy howdy is this episode all about that dog. To the extent that we get a lot of scenes from the point of view of the dog himself, uh, which is always in black and white or semi-black and white, uh, mm. and features what I can only describe as Charlie Brown talking from the humans yeah, yeah. Uh, to show Santa's little helper's lack of comprehension as to what he's being asked to do. Uh, meanwhile, Marge finds Lisa is too ill to go to school, despite the latter's protestations. And a call to Cliff Huxtable... Sorry, I mean Dr. Hibbert at <laughs> home gets an appointment which eventually confirms the mumps. And Bart goes off to school, causing SLH to easily break free of his Nev-R-Break dog collar <laughs> and go bug-hunting, Arpu-annoying and literal wild goose-chasing until Homer is called in by a concerned neighbour to take his dog home. Now this leads him to bump into Ned Flanders, who is back in his older role as the Joneses with whom the Simpsons must keep up, as he shows off his assassin's trainers. He lists off the features of said shoes, and Tom, I think you know what that means. Oh. Can you name the various selling points of assassin's trainers? I know it's got the little vanity license plates. Yep. Uh, it's got a heart rate monitor for some reason, um, but apart from that, I, no, <laughs> I can't remember. Okay, well, that, that's not bad, actually. The, the, other, the other stated features are Velcro straps, which doesn't seem like that big wow. a feature for, uh, for sneakers. Um, but Trainers with Velcro, who'd have thunk it? A water pump in the tongue, which was a genuine early 90s uh, trader feature. Oh, yeah, 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 Reebok pumps, yep, yep. yep. And reflective sidewalls. Okay. <laughs> Fine. So there we go. Um, Lisa phones Homer to tell him about her diagnosis, and Homer leaves work early to get her some magazines featuring non-threatening boys, mm-hmm. including non-threatening boys magazine itself. And it's a trip which takes him past a shop selling assassins, duly leading to his dropping 125 big boys on a pair. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Marge introduces Lisa to the Bouvier family quilt, and calls on her genetic programming, allowing Lisa to magically sew despite apparently never having practised it. At least once her calluses come in. Back to the dog. After molesting the TV remote, giving us a brief glimpse of Troy McClure advertising what appears to be eyeball whitener on (laughs) I Can't Believe They Invented It, Mm -hmm. he gets bored and decides to destroy Homer's new kicks. It is decided, largely off-screen, that SLH needs to go to obedience school and Emily Winthrop's school is chosen. She espouses a tough love approach and the use of choke chains. Unfortunately, he is every bit as respectful of his education as Bart is of his, and he shows no improvement. So now we have to set up the next ultimatum, and we do so with A. Homer purchasing a cookie packed with macadamia nuts from Cookie Colossus, and B. Lisa finishing her patch on the Bouvier family quilt just in time for the latter to be shredded and the former eaten by the delinquent dog. Homer and Marge decide that enough is enough, 
and the dog can only stay if he passes obedience school. It looks like his possibly wild goose is cooked. But when Bart stops using authoritarian methods and instead plays with his dog and shows it plenty of positive attention, it manages to take the lessons on board, because there wouldn't really be a resolution to the episode if it didn't. Ms. Winthrop allows him to pass. And that's about it, really. And because so many of the scenes are given over to the dog's point of view, and the largely non-verbal nature of said scenes, there's not much I can really talk about here. Mm. Now, that doesn't necessarily make it a worse-than-usual episode. But I do feel like it was a bit worse than this last run we've been on. A little bit, a little bit. I mean, I don't know if this is just my subjective opinion, but I've got this idea that this episode is not shown as much on UK TV as other episodes. And I'm just wondering... If that is the case, why that is. And I think it could be several things. One, there is um, the use of the word bitch in the correct scientific sense, as in a female dog's a bitch. Absolutely. So we do get to say bitch, much like we got to say bastard last time. Yeah, yeah. It was bastards last week and it's wall-to-wall bitches this week. But it's possibly also because of the depiction of cruelty to animals with the use of the choke chain. I, th- I think I think with maybe slightly more animal rights sensitive audiences that you would get nowadays, a scene where a dog is sort of casually strangled would not would not go down so well. True enough, it it, it doesn't stint from showing the brutality of it either. Um, it's mm. it's a macabre scene wherever wherever that's brought into play. Yeah, yeah, and the way you've got Tracy Oldman sort of gleefully saying that the dog's eyes will cross and the tongue will protrude and slightly change colour. Yeah. I did feel like there was some uh, there was some pretty good jokes in this episode, though, even if the, the plot was a, a little bit lacking. The, the bit where he goes back to the trainer shop, passing, by the way, a shelf full of trainers just marked street crime, um, <laughs> and the, uh, the clerk tells him that he's not covered for acts of dog. Yes, um, I mean, that, that's just great comedy writing. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So, would you like to hear about, uh, I say some character debuts, there was only really one character debut. Okay. Um, Emily Winthrop, dog trainer, as voiced by Tracy Ullman. Now, this next bit is lifted verbatim from our pilot episode to give you even less motivation to listen to our terrible pilot episode. Oh, good. Well done. Tracy Ullman is a seven-time Emmy Award-winning actress who was originally seen on British television in sketch shows A Kick Up the 80s with Rick Mayle and Miriam Margoyles, and Three of a Kind with Lenny Henry and David Copperfield, and also had a singing career in the UK, where it appears she released two albums and seven best-of compilations? But perhaps I miscounted. But she was the first British woman to be offered her own television sketch show in the US. The show had sketches, song and dance numbers, variety acts and animated segments, which were introduced to buffer the show into and out of commercial. Those animated segments included Dr. Ngutatu, which was actually featured in the first episode of Tracy Ullman, meaning we had to wait until later in the series for The Simpsons. One of those took off and got its own spin-off show, and the other's The Simpsons! Boom, boom, but seriously, the other one never went anywhere. Um, the Simpsons shorts were part of the show until the end of its third season, and Ullman's show continued for a further season after that, ending the year before this appearance. Tracy went on to be in Ally McBeal and Will and & Grace, 
before returning to the BBC from 2016 onwards for Tracy Ullman's show, note the slight difference there, mm-hmm. and Tracy Breaks the News. And along the way, she's been in films such as Robin Hood, Men in Tights, A Dirty Shame, and Corpse Bride. Mm-hmm. Emily Winthrop, then, is not exactly a fleshed-out character. Being as she is a prim and proper British dog trainer who espouses liberal use of the choke chain. The character reappears in Old Money and When Flanders Failed. But I believe both roles are non-speaking. Ullman had been wanting to get involved with the show back when they were shorts and was once nailed on to play Marge before it was decided that she wouldn't have time to do all of that and the rest of the show. Mm-hmm. So this appearance, though fleeting and only in the second series of the show, is actually the culmination of about five years of build-up. It's also worth noting that the inimitable Frank Welker did the various dog noises in this episode. (laughs) I can't remember if we mentioned him before, so here goes. Welker is a voice-acting legend who has voiced Fred Jones from the Scooby-Doo franchise for nearly the character's whole existence, plus Scooby-Doo himself from 2002 onwards, which is the role that Welker originally auditioned for back in the late 60s. Whilst very much more known for animal or monster roles, either with the authentic animal noises which have become his calling card, he's voiced Snowball 2 and Santa's Little Helper, amongst others, up until his departure from The Simpsons in 2002, or those that somehow speak human, and as such was part of Jabberjaw, The Flintstones comedy show, as the much-maligned Shmoo, Dynamut Dog Wonder, Disney's Aladdin as Abu the Monkey and Rajar the Tiger. How's that for range? And he also did all of the Martian voices in Mars Attacks. He also provides the iconic voices of Decepticon leaders Megatron and Galvatron (laughs) and communications officer Soundwave in the 1980s animated series of Transformers. Though more regrettably, also that of Wheelie in the Transformers movie, who is a rubbish Transformer that everyone involved should feel ashamed of. That is one hell of a CV, though. Yeah. So, oh, and as another uh, as another Simpsons crossover, he was also Nibbler in Futurama. Oh, okay, nice. Oh, right, brilliant. So, so the same guy who's playing Nibbler and the aliens in Mars Attacks, which is one of my favourite films. <laughs> so the guy going, he's doing the voice of Santa's little helper in this episode. Yes, that is bizarre. <laughs> um, a couple of um, little. Other Welker facts. As you can tell, I quite enjoyed researching this, uh, even though he's not, not really in the episode that much. Um, he's, um, he took over from the late, great Lorenzo Music as the voice of Garfield, mm-hmm. uh, and has been the voice of Garfield ever since, except for the films where he's played by Bill Murray, whose role in Ghostbusters Lorenzo Music played in the real Ghostbusters, so there's a huge wheel of uh, fortune going on there. Um Welker also has two crossovers with Simpsons guest legend Leonard Nimoy. Nimoy played Galvatron in Transformers the movie, a role later taken by Welker in the series. And Welker is Spock's voice in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, but apparently only when he screams. (laughs) And of course, Nimoy has taken that role over by the end of the film. So it's all a bit like Phil Collins only drumming on the second half of Woman in Chains. Um... (laughs) But with Frank Welker. Wow. Um, so there we go. Did you know, Tom, there's a really high ratio of film references in this, so I'll, I'll just go through a few of them. Uh, 
The most general is the freeze frame we see of the leashes being thrown in the air when the dogs graduate, mm-hmm. and little captions showing what the dogs went on to do. <laughs> uh, and this is a trope of American high school, college, and frat films. Yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly the latter bit is arguably best known from National Lampoon's Animal House. Okay, uh, which, which will be referenced in later episodes of The Simpsons as well. Um, then we have Marge and Lisa touching their calluses together as music similar to but legally distinctive from that used in <laughs> E.T. the Extraterrestrial plays. Yep. Uh, and Marge's needle spinning in the air echoes scenes from 2001 A Space Odyssey. And there's also what appear to be homages to Jaws and Predator in there too, so they're working overtime on the references in this episode. When the family are looking for a canine obedience school, we see an advertisement for <sighs> Dr. Marvin Munro's Canine Therapy Institute. Tagline, your dog isn't the problem, you are. Yeah, thankfully we only see it, we don't hear it. Yes, oh god, thank god for that. Um, Eastside Rough Form School. Um, and strangest of all, Professor Von Bowser's Sanatorium for Dogs. Hey. Tagline, we taught a dog to drive. Yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the blink and you miss it ones. It's sort of blink and you don't get completely confused by it, because I've got no idea what's going on with that. And finally, Bart says they've never had a family meeting before. But we've actually seen them have one. In Season 1, Episode 4, There's No Disgrace Like Home. Boy, I hope someone got fired for that blunder. (laughs) There's just one thing I want to talk about which really ages the episode, in that Lisa has mumps. She has a childhood disease that has been more or less eradicated by the MMR vaccine. So it's of its time in a wonderful way in that it features a character getting a disease that isn't around anymore. MMR came in about 1988, I think, and the episode's from 1991. So Lisa would have been at the, you know, at the back end of when mumps was a thing. But it's just a lovely, lovely reminder of how great vaccines are and you should get your kids vaccinated and vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate because it's brilliant and it stops diseases happening. I mean, it's great that we can say at the moment that it ages things, but given the uh, resurgence of measles, in another 20 years, it might be topical again. Yeah, yeah. It's 2019. I should not have to say and go on record that vaccines work. Oh, dear. What is the world coming to? Let's move on to the LA riots. Okay, so having been in Ireland last week, this time we're in the USA, Los Angeles, California, to be exact, the City of Angels. It's the second largest city in the USA after New York, and it's of huge cultural importance. In fact, Burbank, a city in L.A. County, plays host of a studio where The Simpsons is currently made. So as a settlement, Los Angeles came into existence on September 4th, 1781, when a group of 44 Spanish settlers known as Los Pobladores founded the pueblo of El Pueblo de Nuestra Señora La Reina de Los Angeles. Catchy, eh? That's not not bad on the old accent, though. Well, if my Spanish is any good, yeah. So that translates to the town of Our Lady, the Queen of the Angels. I mean, that's a hell of a name for a new town, especially if there's 40 of you. So anyway, in 1821, New Spain became independent and the town became part of Mexico. The Mexican-American War of 1847 saw the territory ceded to the USA and the town of Los Angeles became American. Towards the end of the 19th century, oil was discovered and it caused a population boom, with a population reaching over 100,000 by the turn of the century. 
The early 20th century saw the city adopt the US's first ordinal zoning plan, separating zones into industrial and residential zones, just like SimCity. This time also saw the emergence of Hollywood, which officially merged with Los Angeles in 1910. The Great Depression, which struck the whole world following the Wall Street crash of 1929, didn't affect LA as much as other places because of the money brought in by the film industry. LA is also an important city for the US military. It was instrumental in the Second World War, producing hundreds of ships for the Navy to use in the war in the Pacific Theatre. And the 1940s saw what's known as the Second Great Migration, where millions of African Americans migrated from the formerly Confederate South to the West Coast, looking for work in the defence industries. It was hardly an escape from racism, though, as ownership of property in certain areas was restricted by ethnicity. Black people were hounded out of their neighbourhoods by white gangs, and they ended up living predominantly in the south of LA, in a region called simply South Central. Many rich white people from downtown LA moved to the ever-expanding suburbs. Canny property developers employed a technique called blockbusting, where they would buy a house in a white inner-city neighbourhood and rent it out to a black family. The white neighbours would be so disgusted that they would often leave, often selling their properties on the cheap to the same property developer. So by design and by prejudice, housing in LA was segregated. In the 1950s, LA saw another wave of migration, this time from Korea. Many settled into an area now known as Koreatown, with many migrants becoming store and restaurant owners. That kind of thing. Koreatown is also in the south of LA, right next to South Central. There was scope for several cultural misunderstandings between Koreans and other members of the LA populace. To start with, in Korean culture, it's very rude to call someone by their first name, so Korean business owners would never be on first name terms with their customers. Secondly, Koreans consider it rude to touch someone else's skin, so if a shopkeeper gives you change, they won't physically hand it to you, but they'll place it on the counter instead. These two cultural differences alone could lead people to think that Koreans were snooty. So, you know, if you go into a corner shop or whatever and it's always the same guy, you might know his name and you might go, all right, Bob, how are you doing? And then Bob will give you your change. But in Korean culture, that wouldn't happen. You'd never call him Bob and Bob would never give you a change. He'd pop it down on the table in front of you. I kind of like that system. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. So on August the 11th, 1965, LA was hit by six days of rioting. A seemingly innocent enough traffic stop of a black man by a white police officer in the neighbourhood of Watts escalated into a full-blown riot after crowds claimed the police officer had kicked a pregnant woman. The riots resulted in 34 deaths, $40 million worth of property damage, and thousands of troops were brought in to stop the violence. So, onto the main focus of our story, one Rodney King. It's fair to say that he was no angel, pardon the pun. He was born in Sacramento, California, and grew up in Altadena, a town 14 miles from downtown LA. On November 3rd, 1989, he robbed a Korean grocery store, threatening the owner with a metal bar and hitting him with a wooden pole. He made off with a couple of hundred dollars, but was soon caught. He was convicted and sentenced to two years in prison. After serving one year, he was up for parole and released on conditional bail. Fast forward to March 3rd, 1991. It's early in the morning, and King has spent the evening drinking with his buddies Bryant Allen and Freddie Helms. He drives back to his home, where a California Highway Patrol vehicle, yes, Chips, driven by husband and wife team Tim and Melanie Singer, spots his car driving erratically. They try to get him to pull over, 
but King knows that if he's found driving under the influence, that would violate his parole and he'd be sent straight back in prison. So instead of pulling over, he puts his foot down and tries to outrun the patrol car. King leaves the highway and enters a residential area, being chased by the police at up to 80 miles an hour. By this point, the police have called for backup, with several police vehicles and a helicopter joining the pursuit. Eventually, King is cornered. Tim Singer orders everyone out of King's car and to lie face down on the floor. Allen's and Helm comply, and the brutality begins almost straight away. Allen is manhandled and threatened while being arrested, and Helms is hit so hard on the head that he ends up with a laceration that leaves his baseball cap covered in blood. As for King, at first he remains in the car. Melanie Singer approaches him with her pistol drawn, ordering him out of the car. At this point, the most senior police officer at the scene, one Stacy Coon, so a bloke with a girl's name and a racial epithet for a surname, not really standing much of a chance there, so he declares that the LAPD are taking over and the CHIPS officers must holster their weapons. Now in charge of the scene, Kuhn ordered four other officers, Lawrence Powell, Timothy Wind, Theodore Brasano and Rolando Solano, to arrest King in a swarm formation. So this involved the four officers rushing King without their guns drawn in an effort to quickly subdue him. Exactly what happened next is kind of sketchy, but it's believed that King was strong enough to throw two of the officers off his back. Kuhn used his taser twice, and King ended up on the floor. King somehow managed to get to his feet, and he made a dash for it. Now, whether he was trying to attack Powell or simply run away isn't that clear, but King and Powell collide. Powell strikes King several times with his baton before appearing to be pulled back by the other officers. After King manages to rise to his knees... The officers repeatedly beat him with their batons and they proceed to kick him too. Once the beating finished, he was taken to Pacifica Hospital where the extent of his injuries became apparent. He'd suffered multiple skull fractures, broken bones and kidney damage. In fact, the nurses at the hospital would later go on record to say that they heard the officers boasting about how many times they had hit King. Although he was found, unsurprisingly, to be over the drink drive limit, he tested negative for everything else despite the police at the time believing he was also under the influence of fencyclidine, also known as PCP, also known as angel dust. That, mm, that would be a possible explanation for his endurance. Uh, yeah, that's, I think that's what they were working on at the time, but completely not. Not at all. Okay. But what made the beating so unusual for the time that it was caught on camera? George Holliday, who happened to be living next to the scene, heard the commotion and started filming the events with his own camcorder. Initially, he attempted to take his recording to the police, but they showed little interest in it. So instead, Holliday took it to KTLA, a local TV station. They aired it on their news, where it caused outrage. And I haven't really mentioned the thorny issue of race in this case yet, have I? Well, it probably won't surprise you to learn that Rodney King, Bryant Allen and Freddie Helms were black, and Stacey Coon, Lawrence Powell, and the rest of the arresting officers were white. The reputation of the police among the black population of LA was very poor, with incidents of brutality worryingly common. What made this incident exceptional was the fact that it was caught on camera. Shortly after the beating, another incident occurred that did nothing to dispel the idea that the black community was under attack, and it involves a Korean shop owner. So just two weeks after the beating of Rodney King, a 15-year-old black girl named Latasha Harlins went into a store owned by Soon Jardu, a 51-year-old Korean-born woman, with the intention of buying a bottle of orange juice. She puts a bottle of orange juice in a backpack while holding money in her hand to pay for it. D 
Do, however, thought she was steaming it. There was an altercation and Do ended up on the floor. As Natasha Harlins turned away, Do reached under the counter and pulled out a gun. She fired at Harlins from a distance of just three feet. The bullet went into the back of Natasha Harlins' head, killing her instantly. I mean, I've seen the footage. She's killed in cold blood. So what you have there is a killing and a serious beating, both highly publicised. Both of them lead to trials, with Do's being heard first. At Do's trial, Do defended herself and claimed her actions were in self-defence. This was obviously total nonsense as Harlins was walking away when the shot was fired. Ballistics experts also found out that the gun had been altered to require a lot less pressure on the trigger to fire it, which is a very suspicious thing to do. On November 15th, 1991, a jury decided that Do was responsible for killing Harlins, but she was convicted of voluntary manslaughter rather than murder, as her actions weren't considered to be premeditated. So the conviction wasn't at all surprising. What was, was the sentencing. The maximum sentence for involuntary manslaughter back then was 15 years in prison, and this is what the jury recommended. However, the judge, Joyce Carlin, for some reason took pity on Dew, saying that Dew would be punished every day for the rest of her life. You know, one of those, she's got to live with the guilt of it type things. So instead of handing down a custodial sentence, Dew's punishment was five years probation, 400 hours of community service, and a $500 fine. Okay, now... Now, I must admit, and I'm not looking for you to explain this uh, off the bat, Tom, <laughs> um, that I don't really understand the idea of voluntary manslaughter. I understand murder and I understand manslaughter in the British terms, but obviously in American law there are different uh, different sections and so on and so forth. So voluntary manslaughter isn't quite one that I, I understand, but at the same time... It's got to be jail time, hasn't it? Well, it's, it's got to be jail time. The way under the way I understand it, it's kind of a heat of the moment thing, you know. A, a, a crema passionel, I think, is the French phrase. Okay. So it's like if if is it like temporary insanity then? Not really, not really. But but it but it's if you were to take leave of your senses. So the idea is that there was an altercation, and do thought she was in danger. And then she then she drew a gun and fired it. I, I mean, I still don't get that defence though because because I've seen the footage of it. And she does. She just pulls out a gun and shoots her in the back of the head. It's it it's it's disgusting. And she got a five hundred dollar fine for it. So in an appeal held in April nineteen ninety two, Carlin's decision was was upheld. So just so just weeks later. Four of the police officers who beat Rodney King were put on trial, all charged with assault and using excessive force. As the case was so high profile, it wasn't held in LA, but in next door Simi Valley. As race was already a huge issue, the makeup of the jury was noted. So it contained nine white people, one person of dual heritage, one Latino and one Asian American. So no black people on the jury. The only black person involved in the trial apart from Kingy himself, of course, was the prosecutor, although confusingly enough, he had the surname White. Okay. So so, so his name was Terry White, and he was black. There you go. Definitely not Terry White. No, not Terry White. No, definitely okay. not. <laughs> just, just checking, just checking. During evidence giving, the jury was shown the holiday footage several times. On April 29th, 1992, after seven days of deliberation, the jury returned the following verdicts. All four officers were acquitted of, of assault, and all but one of them were acquitted of using excessive force, 
with the jury failing to reach a verdict for the fourth. As you might expect, those verdicts were met with anger. Stacey Coon had to be shepherded out of the courtroom, and John Singleton, a famous film director, summed everything up by declaring that, by having this verdict, what these people done, they lit the fuse to a bomb. So hours later, the LA riots of 1992 started. At first, the rioting was concentrated around 71st and Normandy in South Central, but it soon spread. Stores were looted, fires started, and people were dragged from their cars and beaten. The most infamous incident being that of Reginald Denny, a white truck driver who was dragged from the cab of his truck and beaten by four black men who became known as the LA-4. One of them was Henry Watson, a former US Marine. Denny was attacked with a brick, causing 91 skull fractures and almost leaving him dead. He was rescued by Bobby Green Jr., and he survived thanks to the quick actions of emergency surgeons. The whole incident was broadcast live via a TV news helicopter. In the early phases, the police abandoned Koreatown, leaving it to business owners and residents to defend themselves from looters. It must have resembled a war zone, as thanks to American gun laws, some of the store owners had access to weapons such as M1 carbines, which is really, really heavy stuff. And a lot of the Koreans also fought in the Korean War, which is one of the reasons why they came over in the first place. They would have had contact with American soldiers, and the idea was that they would come to America looking for a better life. On the third day, Rodney King emerged from his lawyer's office to give a tearful speech, famously saying, people, I just want to say, you know, can we all get along? Later that day, the governor of California, Pete Wilson, made a request for federal assistance to stop the riots. George W. Bush responded by invoking the Insurrection Act, which put the California National Guard under federal control. On the fourth day, thousands of troops arrived to restore order. By the time the riots had finished, 55 people had been killed, Thousands were injured, and the damage caused was estimated to be over a billion dollars. So what happened to the major players in the whole sorry saga? Well, the riots were by no means the end of the story for Rodney King and the police officers who beat him. The Department of Justice sought a federal indictment against the officers for violating King's civil rights. Kuhn and Powell were found guilty, and each sentenced to 30 months in prison. As for King, he sued the city of Los Angeles and was awarded $3.8 million dollars. He invested a portion of his money into a record label that ultimately failed. Since then, he was arrested multiple times for drink driving and had issues with alcohol throughout the rest of his life. On June 17th, 2012, which was Father's Day, King was found dead at the bottom of his swimming pool. And it was 28 years to the day since King's own father drowned in a swimming pool. So it's a very, very tragic story. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? Yeah. Did not know that Mm -hmm. particular aspect. Mm -hmm. So the eulogy was given by the Reverend Al Sharpton, and King's body was interred at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Los Angeles. As for Stacey Kuhn, he's very much alive as far as I can tell, and he's working as a limo driver, counting Al Gore as one of his clients. Now, Stacey Kuhn has been mentioned in The Simpsons by Birch Barlow in the episode Sideshow Bob Roberts, the one where Sideshow Bob becomes mayor. Barlow says that he's been railroaded by our liberal justice system. Remember that? I do, yes, yes. I was listening to uh, Talking Simpsons, uh, because do remember, other other Simpsons podcasts are available. Just mm-hmm. make sure you listen to this one first. <laughs> uh, yeah, listening to their uh, episode on Sideshow Bob Roberts, and that gave me the, the, the skinny on sort of right-wing politics at the time and uh, all the references that he made in that. Yeah, so, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to that one. Yeah, brilliant. So, Reginald Denny, 
has led a quiet life, recovering from his injuries. After Henry Watson was released from prison for his role in the attack, he met Denny on a live TV show, apologised, and shook his hand. Which is quite nice. Yeah. So as for the family of Latasha Harlins, they were awarded $300,000 in a settlement in July 1992. The judge who handed out the extraordinarily lenient sentence to do, Joyce Carlin, was effectively banned from trying cases by the district attorney Ira Rayner. Despite this, Carlin was re-elected, because, you know, they elect judges in the USA because they're mad, quite frankly. Um, She retired in 1997. So that's it. The story of the beating of Rodney King and the 1992 LA riots. It's a sorry tale, and for its role in it, the LAPD most certainly gets an F. I like what you did there. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So there's a couple of things I want to talk about in relation to The Simpsons and LA. So LA played host to the 1984 Olympics, which of course was boycotted by communist countries following the US boycott of the Moscow Olympics of 1980. And it ruins Krusty Burger's giveaway. Absolutely, yes. It would have driven Krusty to the brink of bankruptcy. Yes, yes. I, lo- I still love that as a giveaway, though. You get a free Krusty Burger if the US wins a gold medal at a random event. But they're not random. They're all in events that communists <laughs> never lose. <laughs> It's brilliant. I love that as an idea. But there was one country that didn't boycott the 1984 Olympics. Well, one of the communist countries who didn't boycott the 84 Olympics. Okay. Do you know which one it was? I don't, but that's not going to prevent me from having a guess at it. Oh, have a guess, have a guess, because it's very relevant to stuff we've talked about in the past. Okay. Is it... Is it Romania? Yes, it is. Yes, because Ceausescu was the first first thing we spoke about on this podcast. That is. Very good. Very good. Excellent. Yeah, because uh, Ceausescu at the time had this image of, like, you know, the good communist. Mm. So he toured the world, meeting all the leaders of various Western powers and, you know, enjoying all the pomp and ceremony and all of that while his people starved. Yes. Which was nice. But yeah, him allowing Romania to compete in the 84 Olympics, that just... Uh, really, really helps his image in the States. And probably saved Krusty from bankruptcy. <laughs> Quite possibly. In the gymnastics, I would have thought. So final thing to finish on. MacArthur Park is in LA. That's the same MacArthur Park that inspired the song originally by Jimmy Webb, but made famous by Donna Summer. And that song would go on to be covered by... Oh, here we go. Pahusha Cheta Nahasapima Petalon on the tabla in Lisa the Beauty Queen. Yes. So that is the end of my Los Angeles Simpsons facts. And there's probably loads more. But those are the ones I could come up with. I'm trying to think if I've ever heard uh, somebody on that show say, the Simpsons are going to Los Angeles. But I actually can't. No. I wonder, the, surely, they've been, surely they've been to Hollywood. Um, hmm. I'm sure they've been to Grauman's Chinese Theatre. I shall think further on this, but why don't we also throw that over to our listeners? Uh, if anyone can yeah. remember uh, The Simpsons actually going to LA, then drop us a line. Because it's quite possible it's in one of the episodes I haven't seen. Mm. And bear in mind, I haven't seen any episodes after, like, series 12 or something. Because I'm an old-school Simpsons purist. I refuse to watch any episode of Simpsons that isn't old enough to drink, basically. I can put you together a good playlist of those. And, uh, I'll tell you what it won't feature... The Regina monologues <laughs> featuring war criminal Tony Blair. And we're back in the room. Awesome. <laughs> so I think uh, before we have to mention Tony Blair again, we better wrap up. Um, don't forget, you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. 
You can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus, email us at podcastofretrospecticus.org, and check out the 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.